This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg, and I have the pleasure of having as my guest, actually the daughter of a prior guest, but we'll get to that in a second, Erica Stancliffe from Fendler Vineyards. She's the winemaker. And I got to tell you, this is really an interesting story because she really started at the tender age of 10 when she demonstrated her skills that would later define her career as a winemaker and etiologist. Now, she's actually been raised in a food-centric family. Erica credits her mother, Ricky Trombetta, with the aha moment when she knew that she was going to become a winemaker. Following graduation from California State University Fresno and an internship at Via Cobos Winery in Mendoza, Argentina, Erica managed to inch her way closer to home, working for Rudd Oakville Estate in Napa Valley and Cross Barn Winery in Sebastopol before spending more than two years as a technical enologist. Since 2014, Erica has been at the helm as winemaker for Trombetta Family Wines and has helped her family's winery expand from 500 cases of a single Pinot Noir in a year to a broad portfolio of over 1,200 cases of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Now, in addition to Fendler Vineyards and her family's winery, Erica also serves as winemaker at Stressed Vines, E Street Crew, O'Connell Vineyards, and enologist at Michael Brown's Cirque in the Russian River Valley. In 2015, she became a certified sommelier with the Quartermaster Sommeliers. She joined her mother and fellow winemaker, Ricky Trombetta, and a team of women winemakers to establish the Petaluma Gap American Viticultural Area, also known as an AVA, in 2017 as a way to highlight the region's unique grapes and winemaking process. In 2018, she became vice president of the Petaluma Gap Wine Growers Alliance, and in 2019, she became president of the board. She met Kimberly while collaborating on a Petaluma Gap auction lot for the 2018 Sonoma County Barrel Auction. From their first blending session, Erica and Kimberly shared a common vision for wine, and Erica immediately recognized the quality of Fendler's three estate vineyards. A mentor to enology students from Santa Rosa Junior College in Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, Erica hopes to help make the wine industry accessible to underrepresented groups and inspire the next generation of winemakers in their endeavors. Erica, what a pleasure it is to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have to tell you that uh, when I interviewed your mom, Ricky, oh gosh, probably uh, a couple of years ago, definitely before the world turned upside down, her podcast interview was one of the top rated interviews on the Vine Guy podcast. And I got to tell you, you got big shoes to fill, but I have a feeling, just have a feeling, you're probably going to uh, out number hers. That's going to be pretty cool. So I got let's, let's go back. So in the, in the, in the introduction, I had said, you know, at the tender age of 10, you demonstrated your skills that would later define your career as a winemaker and etiologist. It's a pretty interesting story. Please take us through that. Yes. So my family, I grew up in the heart of Russian river in Forceville and um, my parents were home winemakers. So my first introduction to wine was it was interesting because it was my dad's wine that he would make in this little outbuilding that we had next to my parents' house. So I grew up around wine, but I never really knew of it as anything other than what my dad and his friends spent the weekends doing in the fall. And 
when I was about 10 years old, my mother actually started working for Paul Hobbs. And that was before people knew of Paul as, you know, Paul Hobbs, the winemaker. They knew of Paul and um, his wines, but it was just as he was really starting his brand. So um, he came, he became a very um, like big fixture in our lives because my mother worked for him. And when she found she told him that she was a home winemaker and he found out, he said, great, I get free harvest help. You're going to help me in the vineyards and help me in the winery, as well as do, you know, my events and help with hospitality. So Paul was always at the house and he would come over for dinner very often with me and my parents. So he came over one night and he brought over a bottle of 1997 Michael Black Merlot from Coombsville in Napa. And he, you know, poured glasses for everybody at the table and goes, Erica, go ahead and smell it. And my first inclination, because once again, I was used to my dad's garage wine, was what's wrong with it? Because I always had a very um, strong sense of smell. So my dad would walk in with wines and be like, what does this smell like? And I would say, it smells like eggs. So it smells like sulfur or it smells like nail polish remover. So ethyl acetate. And Paul kind of looks at me and he goes, there's nothing wrong with it. Just go ahead and smell and taste it. And when he did, it reminded me of a berry cobbler that my mother had made the night before for the dinner. And so I was talking about how it reminded me of blueberries and blackberries and the kind of crumble uh, crust that goes on top of the blueberry cobbler. And he just kind of looks at me, he looks at my parents and he looks at me and he was like, I think you need to be a winemaker. And so that was, for me, that was my aha moment of wine is something so much more than what I had ever even begun to scratch the surface of, and that it was something that could be complex and beautiful and multi-layered. And of course I was very young at the time. So to have that moment so young in my life really was what paved the way for me to go into winemaking as a career. So Eric, I have to ask you, you know, you, you just said that your dad would bring his wine in and it was nail polish and, and sulfur and, and eggs. And then Paul Hobbs brings a bottle over and all of a sudden it's blackberry cobbler. I got to, how does, how does that make your dad feel? I love my father. He is an engineer by trade. And so he, and he has made some really beautiful home wines. I mean, his Chardonnay every year is great, his Pinot, but this was back when he had first started as a home winemaker. So there was quite a journey that happened from when Paul Hobbs became a family friend to where the home winemaking and where Trombetta is now. Um, He was a little offended, to be honest, but at the same time, I think that, you know, being humbled by sitting at a table with Paul and one of his 95 plus point wines and then the home wine that he makes on weekends when he's working a full-time job. I think he understood that the two were not the same. So there was that good little uh, understanding, but a little offended. As as pointed out to him by a 10-year-old wine critic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, following graduation from uh, Cal State University Fresno, I wasn't aware Fresno's got an enology program. Yes. So Fresno actually, um, when I was looking at going to schools, the only three enology programs were Fresno State, UC Davis, or Cornell. 
Now, as much as I would have loved to go to Cornell because my dad went to Cornell, I did not have the grades to go to Cornell. And so I was looking between UC Davis and Fresno State. And I didn't know much about the Fresno program. Paul and a lot of good friends had gone to UC Davis, but Fresno actually started their program. They were one of the first um, actual enology programs in the United States, and they actually have a bonded winery. Now, why that's a big deal is that they are able to, um, they have over 200 acres of farmland, so they grow their own grapes. So the students go out, pick the grapes, prune the vineyard, do all of that work. But then we actually have to make the product from when the grapes come into the winery to when we're putting them in the bottle and they get sold at the supermarket. So we were able to help design labels, actually work bottling lines, actually do the pump overs and punch downs. So it was a very hands-on um, experience because at the time they were the only bonded winery. UC Davis didn't have a winery. Cal Poly's program wasn't analogy. Um, it was food science with an emphasis in enology. So everyone that I talked to in the industry, my question was, where would you hire me if I graduated? Like day after I graduated, where would you hire me from? And they all said Fresno. So that's how I chose to uh, live in Fresno for four and a half years. <laughs> Very cool. And then uh, what took you to Mendoza after graduation? Why Mendoza? So a lot of my friends, I graduated after the fall semester. And so I had missed the Northern Hemisphere harvest in 2010. And I had helped with Trombetta first starting, but obviously not the time and dedication because I was finishing up school. So I was looking at where to go. And a lot of my friends were going to Australia and New Zealand. And I was just like, that would be an amazing experience, but I wanna go somewhere a little more challenging in the sense of something a little more rustic and old world. Um, Australia and New Zealand are amazing and have some great new technology and are doing all of these really cool things. But with Paul's connections down in Argentina, I had actually met the owners of Vina Cobos uh, when they had broken ground on the winery. So I emailed them and decided to go down to Argentina for four months and work in Mendoza. And then I was actually also able to travel with Paul into Chile when he did some of his consulting runs. So I got to see Harvest in two different countries, which was actually pretty cool. Probably should point out that Paul Hobbs is a pretty big deal. Now you met him when you were 10 years old and he was really just kind of starting his brand, as you said. But today I would argue that Paul Hobbs is probably one of the definitely top 50 or top 100 winemakers in the world. So it's really pretty amazing that you've got such a remarkable mentor as quote, uncle Paul. I love that. And, I'm, and just pretty cool. I was extremely lucky. Um, Paul definitely helped me a lot in the beginning of my career, just giving me really great advice and kind of just telling me you're going to have to work extremely hard and know what you want in order to get it. And that's why I've done Everything is I've been lucky to have really great people to support me, but I've also had really great opportunities where I've gotten to learn from some of the best minds in the industry. And I hands down acknowledge that. And that's why I hope to give back to other people in this industry who are just trying to start out and kids who want to learn about winemaking. So you started out in 14 uh, at the helm of Trombetta, you know, taking over that I guess I have to ask, what was that experience like? I mean, working in the family business, 
you know, I don't want to say you were a kid, but you, you are still pretty young. It's, it's important to point that out. And here you are in 14 kind of stepping in and were you working with your mom or, or your dad at the time? No. So my parents had, um, Paul had been consulting the first few years that we had started our brand. And so my mother and I went on every single vineyard pick in the middle of the night and we would help out as much as possible. My mom would usually stay to help sort the next morning or I would depending on work or school or whatever it was. But in 14, I was working directly at Cross Barn, helping them with their wine, but also at the same time, making trombetta and it was kind of uh an interesting harvest in the sense of i had been telling my parents that we needed to make some chardonnay because we were only pinot at the time and paul had a little bit of extra gaps crown chardonnay and so i was working closely with paul and he calls my mom up and says do you guys want a little bit of chardonnay and she goes yeah sure like erica's been asking us to do some shard let's go for it and paul just goes have fun it's on the crush pad and just walks away. He's like, figure it out. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So deep end of the pool, Erica, deep end of the pool. I, I tend to do well under pressure, I guess, because it still to this day is probably the, my favorite Chardonnay I've ever made. But that was really after my mom, after everything had been barrel aged and we were tasting samples later in 2015. And, you know, you're as a winemaker, you taste through a lot of wine, especially someone like Paul, who's consulting a lot. And my mom didn't know what to expect because, you know, she had just trusted me with this project. And so we're all sitting around the table tasting these barrel samples. And when everyone around the table, including Paul, swallows the wine sample, that's when you know that you did a good job. And so my parents just said, okay, we trust you. Have fun. You'll figure it out. Uh, and you really did grow the brand. I mean, from 500 cases to 1200 plus is pretty big accomplishment as, as is, by the way, when I, I think I mentioned in, in the opening that you've also served as winemaker at stressed uh, O'Connell and then uh, enologist at Michael Brown Cirque, which by the way, I was at a wine judging about uh, two or three years ago when Michael Cirque first came out. And people were really super excited about that wine. And I remember one of the judges turning to me saying, this is probably one of the best domestic Pinot Noirs I've ever tasted. So kudos, that was quite an accomplishment. But I want to turn for just a second. And by the way, it is a small world that, you know, I've um, had the pleasure of hanging out with both Michael Brown and Dan Costa uh, back in the day. But I've also had the pleasure of meeting a very, very remarkable woman, Kimberly Fendler, who you ended up working with and are now the winemaker for Fendler Vineyards. And I have to say, I met Kimberly, and I want to say it was probably about eight or nine years ago. Um, she had, was living in Petaluma, beautiful property, trying to figure out what exactly to do with the, the vineyards, which were spectacular. Before we talk about Kimberly, I'd love for you to talk about your passion for Petaluma. And what's so unique about it? The Petaluma Gap is very special because it's actually a geographical location. This is not a um, AVA that was driven by, you know, soil type. It was not driven by different kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to express the words because there are so many different AVAs out there and trying to distinguish why each of them are different and special is always, you know, 
it's a passion project for a lot of us who grow grapes in that region, but it's also very difficult when you have so many different AVAs in Sonoma County alone, just as an example. And for the Petaluma Gap, why it's so special is that it runs all the way from the Pacific coast to San Pablo Bay. So you have two bodies of water. Now you take into consideration the hills and the hills are not running north to south in this area. There's actually a break where they're running east to west and that break in the mountains and the hillsides is actually what creates the Petaluma Gap. So that gap starts out at the Pacific Ocean and creates a wind tunnel. And that wind tunnel, we actually had to have numerous wind sensors set up for years in order to petition TTB and ABC in order to make this an ABA and put it on our ABA application to show them why this region was so special. So we had to back it up with a lot of data. And um, the wind is at a constant eight to 10 miles an hour all throughout the gap with gusts all throughout the day that reach anywhere from 20 to 25 miles an hour. And why this wind is so important is that Pinot Noir especially is a very thin skinned grape. That's why you get such light color in a lot of Pinots and different extraction methods can make it lighter or richer. And so when you think about a small grape with a small cluster that's very thin skinned and the skin is where all of the color and all of the aromatics and all of the tannin pretty much lives in the skin. There's a little bit in seeds, but for the most part, it's the skin has all of the good stuff and the pulp is just the sugar, water, and acid. So what the wind does is it actually makes the skins thicker. That's how the grapevine has been able to cope against the wind and against that climate in order to ripen properly. Because all a grapevine wants to do is get enough sugar into the grape so that the seeds get ripe and then the fruit will go off and replant a vine somewhere. That's all the fruit wants to do. So you have small berries with thicker skins, which then means richer color, richer flavors. But on top of that, because of the wind influence and the fog that comes in with that wind, we have a longer growing season. So as a winemaker, it's our dream because in a lot of other AVAs that are warmer, you only get a certain pick window, which can be very short. So you have to pick something within three to four days or you could have missed your target on flavors, sugar, acid, whatever you're targeting. Whereas in the Petaluma Gap, it could be 105 degrees in Santa Rosa and the Petaluma Gap, it'll top about 85 to 90. And then that cold air and the fog are gonna come right back in and bring it down tremendously overnight. So the diurnal shift is massive, the wind, the cool climate, all of that then means that we get a super long picking window and we get to retain the acidity in the wine as well. So while the sugar is ripening in the grapes, you're getting to maintain that acid, which then for the richer Pinot is going to cut through and keep the palate very vibrant and very fresh. And that is why I love Petaluma so much and the Petaluma Gap because the wines from there you have a broad spectrum, but that cool coastal wind and fog keeps the acidity and makes it so that the fruit is actually ripe when you pick it. So that can mean a lot of different things to people, but the skins are ripe, the pulp is ripe, the seeds are ripe. So you're going to get this amazing flavor combination and complexity, tannin and everything else in the wine, but you're going to retain that acid that just makes it a balanced and beautiful Pinot and Chardonnay at the end of the day. Erica, I have to tell you, I've heard a lot of people explain 
uh, on this podcast and in other ways, the importance of diurnal swings with respect to acid and tannin. I have never heard it with such clarity and with such passion. That is awesome. <laughs> I will say also, having been to the Petaluma Gap, uh, two very notable things. One is uh, I used to have hair until the wind blew it all away in, in Petaluma. And the second was you could set your watch by that fog roll in. It is amazing to see. You can literally just watch that fog come right off the coast and right into the gap. And unless you actually see it and you're up on a hilltop where you can be up and over it and watch it come in. Wow. It is really breathtaking. That is just a, a no pun intended, a pretty cool sight to see. So um, let's, let's circle back now. Uh, you're in the Petaluma Gap. You've got, you know, making great wines at Fendler. How did you and Kimberly meet? So back in 2018, there was a barrel auction. Well, Sonoma County does a barrel auction with the Vintners every year. And so what it is, is different. Um, wineries can do it as their own, or people can come together for collaboration lots to do a never before, never again kind of wine lot that they then present and gets auctioned off. And then the proceeds go to um, charity and also back to helping us all market Sonoma County and the amazing wines that we produce. And so we had decided since it was our first year as being an AVA that we should do a men winemaker versus women winemaker lot and do kind of our little battle of the sexes for Petaluma Gap. Those so, poor men. <laughs> I, we, we, be, we beat them by about $5,000. Uh, I will say <laughs> that. Uh, but you know, and of course it was all for a great cause. So everyone was, you know, we were playful about it, but, um, so we were putting together the, uh, different winery sites and different wines that we wanted to put into the women winemaker lot. And that was how I was introduced to Kimberly Fendler was a good friend of mine, uh, Kareth from Brilliant. She was like, we really should reach out to Kimberly. Her sites are amazing and we should get the wine in the collab lot. And I was like, great. That sounds awesome. You know, I haven't really heard of Fendler. So I know that they're part of the Petaluma Gap, but I've never seen the vineyards or really tried the wines. And so we all met at uh, a custom crush facility where Kareth was making her wine and sat down to blend out all of the Petaluma Gap Pinot. And so everybody brought barrel samples. Uh, we, of course, being pretty meticulous, we had everybody pull neutral barrel samples, new French oak barrel samples, and then full composites so we could decide whose French oak we liked better, whose neutral we liked better, or if we just wanted to go with full composites on everything. And so we're sitting down and tasting, and it's myself, Kimberly, Kareth from Brilliam, Anna Keller from Keller Estate, and Megan from Klein. And we're all sitting down tasting through the wines and we're like, okay, like these are great. And when we got to the Fendler, I really noticed just how elegant the wine was with the acidity and the mouthfeel, but also how intense the fruit characteristics were. And that just rich texture that you really get from high elevation fruit, but also from Petaluma Gap fruit. So she really as I started asking more questions and kind of prodding her a little bit, I'm like, so where's your site located? How up on the hill are you? Like, tell me more about your vineyards. And we just, you know, kept the conversation going and just really had a 
very, very consistent view on how we both felt Petaluma Gap Pinot should be um, expressed, but also how we felt, you know, with the growing season in the vineyards and kind of all of that methodology, we all really agreed on. So that's where Kimberly and I developed our friendship. And then later was when she came back to me and said, you know, I really, I, I loved the conversation we had. I really would love if you would come on and help me start making some of these wines. And so that's what I did in 2019. Very cool. Very cool. Now I understand that Kimberly's got three different vineyard sites. Can you tell me a little bit about those sites? Yes. So it's really amazing. All three of them are on the same mountain on the same road. So they're on the Southwest facing slope of Sonoma mountain, but they're all three at very different elevations. So the Polis Vineyard, which is the lowest elevation, it's actually Kimberly's maiden name and her parents live on the property, is planted to Pinot and Chardonnay. And Polis is really cool because it's the latest ripening of the three, so the lower elevation. It's right at the fog line. So the vineyard will get a little wisp of the fog, but there's really no moisture problems or anything like that. Also with the Petaluma Gap wind coming out, we don't have to worry about mildew or botrytis or anything like that. That just keeps everything clean in the canopy. And um, we do a little bit of Pinot from Polis, but most of the Chardonnay is from there. Then there is the, and that sits at about 900 foot elevation, just to give you a reference. And then as you go up the hill, there's the original home ranch. Now the home ranch was originally planted to Bordeaux varietals and then was grafted over to Pinot and Chardonnay. Um, it was actually planted, I wanna say to uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cab Franc and Petit Verdot. And that was of course back in the nineties when everyone thought, oh, you know, Napa does it. So we'll just <laughs> plant right. it here. We'll do it too. Not realizing, you know, of course, as you were saying, you can set your watch by the wind and the fog coming in for the Petaluma Gap. So way too cold in that location specifically to grow any Bordeaux varietals. They would never get ripe. So they decided to graft over to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay at that home ranch. Um, and so we pull Chardonnay from there as well. And we made a really fun rosé in 2019 from those uh, Pinot grapes on that site. And then as you go further up the hill, and the home ranch sits at about 1,100 feet. So, you know, there's a couple hundred feet between the first two. You get up to the top ranch, which is called Helgren, and Helgren is solely Pinot. It's on this kind of plateau where it gets really beautiful sun exposure, but it's at 1,500 to 1,700 feet. So it's much higher elevation. It's the first ripening because it gets more of that sun, but at the same time, it's very cool up there. So... Petaluma Gap, to give you a reference, we're harvesting Russian river fruit beginning to middle of September. Usually that's kind of the bulk area is somewhere from like September 5th to about September 20th is when Russian river really is pulling in. Petaluma Gap and these vineyards specifically, Helgren, we don't harvest until September 30th or October 1st. That's wow. how long it takes them to ripen because it is so much cooler and because of that wind influence and the fog, it just takes much more time. And, um, and that's what I really mean when I say that we have a long growing window. I mean, on Monday in Russian River, if you have a, let's say you just have a normal 85, 80 kind of Fahrenheit week coming up, 
on Monday, you're going to have 24 bricks, but by Wednesday, you could have 25 bricks. That's just kind of how it goes and the sugar accumulates. In the Petaluma Gap, it's going to be about 80 degrees, but you have that cool down. So it's going to be 24 bricks on Monday. It's going to be 24.2 on Wednesday, and then maybe 24.3 on Friday. So it really takes a long time for the sugar to kind of accumulate in those berries. Um, but Helgren is all Pinot Noir. It's planted to two clones. It is Swan and Calera clone. And it's a really beautiful kind of, um, since it's on the top portion of the Sonoma Mountain slope. And Sonoma Mountain's not a true mountain. It looks like a muffin that was sat on that has multiple kind of ridge tops. So, <laughs> Great description. People, people think of a mountain and they think of an actual mountain with a peak. And this does not have that. It is a very kind of like oblong, weird, squished muffin looking thing. That someone sat on. Exactly. And um, so because of that, we're at one of the close, like we're close to the top of one of those kind of ridge lines and the soils, there's a lot of rock, but there's also some volcanic, there's some sandy loam. There's, it's a really interesting kind of multi-layer texture. Um, the other vineyards have, as you get slower down the mountain, some have more clay that run through them, which Petaluma is known for, that adobe clay. Some of them have a little more volcanic, but also rock in them, just for the way that everything with over the years has kind of come down from the top and run down to the base of the mountain. So um, all three sites are really unique in that way that they all have something very different to offer. You have the lower lying, which is a little closer to the fog. You have the middle, which is kind of in a richer soil. And then you have the top, which is in way more direct sunlight, but has a rockier soil to it. So it's really cool to get to work with three different vineyards at three different elevations on the same mountainside and on the same road. How has that impacted the way that you make wines as a winemaker? So we keep everything separate. That's really, as, as you get to know vineyards, as you get to know different sites, you're really just kind of figuring out, um, my philosophy with winemaking is that I really want the vineyard to speak. And so what that means for my winemaking is trying to find that really nice area where there's enough sugar, but there's also really beautiful acid in the grapes and the ripeness and the skins and the pulp, but then keeping everything once it comes into the winery separate because I want to see how the different clones and how the different, you know, the Chardonnay and the Pinot, how everything is going to react through fermentation. And then I can get a sense for it when we put it into barrel of, well, maybe this one should go in more neutral oak than new French oak, or, oh, this one's a little bit bigger. It can hold a little more French oak to it. Really, I feel like 2019 was me getting to know the vineyards. And so I'm really excited for this vintage because now I feel like I have a pretty good sense on what Helgren, what Helgren's voice is and what the Polish Chardonnay voice is going to be. So we're really going to kind of, I'm going to tailor things a little, you know, keep it in the same style, but tailor a little differently with my barrel selection because now I have an idea of what that vineyard wants to do. A lot of it is a learning curve and just kind of trying to figure out when you have an idea of what something is and what the fruit is like, but how to elevate it and really make it sing in the bottle. So you just mentioned barrel selection. What is your barrel protocol? 
So for the Pinots, we're keeping it at about 45 to 50% new French oak. Um, we use medium toast and some medium plus toast on the Coopers. And the Coopers that we use are pretty, uh, they're really good at elevating fruit as well as increasing mouthfeel as opposed to adding too much um, of that oak tannin and spice. Because like I said, I really want the vineyard to be able to speak and you to understand the site and really get that Petaluma Gap Pinot, but that really beautiful intensity that that fruit has. Um, for the Chardonnay, it's kind of the same situation. We're fermenting in about 50% new French oak, but then for the aging process, because when you barrel ferment something, you're not filling the barrel all the way up. You're giving it headspace for the yeast and the CO2 production. So it ferments in 50% new French oak, but then it ages in only about 30% new French oak. So that way you get some extraction from the oak and fermentation, but then it gets to age and sit on the leaves in more neutral. So it creates that density in the mid palate and in the texture of the wine. Wow. So for people who may not be familiar when we talk about toast on a barrel, they actually do toast the actual wood from the inside and there's light toast, medium toast, and medium dark toast, kind of like <laughs> on bread, but, uh, and which, and the different toasts on the wood itself impart different characteristics to the wine. Cor correct. Yes, exactly. I mean, your lighter toast is going to be much more kind of vanilla and soft. When you get into the medium toast, you're getting a little bit more of that baking spice. And once you get into the darker toast, you can get more of that mocha coffee kind of um, much richer characteristic from the oak. Well, I got to tell you, all this talk about uh, barrel aging and fermenting and bottling has made me pretty thirsty. So we're coming up to my favorite part of the podcast. What's in your glass? <laughs> so I understand you have two wines for us to try today, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, take us through the first, uh, the first bottle. So the 2019 Fenler Chardonnay, this was my first vintage as Kimberly's winemaker. And this Chardonnay is really special because as you will see with Petaluma Gap wines, and as I've talked about a lot, is the intensity, but the acidity that gets to play through. So this wine has really beautiful aromatics that are kind of soft floral and citrus blossom. But then when you get to the palate, there's a really nice density and drawdown in the middle of the palate that comes from the barrel aging and from sitting on the leaves. So all of those dead yeast and bacteria cells that did the fermentation just adds really beautiful mouthfeel but then the acidity cuts through and it almost gives it kind of this like lemon curd characteristic because you've got enough acid in the creaminess that it's not cloying. So you can keep coming back and drinking more and more sips of this and it would pair beautifully with food, but it's also super enjoyable on its own in the glass. Wow. So uh, what are the primary notes that you're getting through on this, on the palate? So I get a lot of kind of honeysuckle, lemon curd, and I always equate it to creme fraiche because of that little bit of acidity in the finish on it. Um, but cream is definitely something that I get in the mid palate on this wine. A lot of cream. And if you could pair it with anything, what would be your ideal pairing? I think some really good pasta carbonara, homemade pasta Ooh. carbonara would be perfect with this. Nice acid to cut through the fat, but then the egg and the cream would just perfectly together. Your mother's cooking, I take it. 
Yes. Yes. My mother's pasta for sure. <laughs> so I have to say, just before we get to the next wine, I, I do want to comment that we are doing this virtually via zoom and I'm, I'm looking at you and the one thing that you and your mother have definitely uncommon is you speak with your hands a lot. <laughs> It's Italian. I can't help myself. When I had your mom in the studio, I thought for sure she was going to knock off uh, two or three of our microphones. <laughs> yeah, she uh, she definitely talks a lot more with her hands than I do. She is the full-blooded Italian. I'm only 50%. So I just, I get some hand motions, but then I'm like, okay, Erica, no, you've got to control it. <laughs> All right, Erica. So what's in, uh, what's in the next class? So the next glass is our 2019 Pinot Noir from Fendler. And this is really fun because this is actually the first Pinot that we've had be solely from the Helgren site. So oh. in previous vintages, we would add maybe a little bit of the polis into it or a little bit more of the home ranch into it. But the 2019 is all Helgren. So that means it's 50% Swan clone, 50% uh, Calera, and it's really beautiful. I mean, this wine has just, it has such rich aromatics where you get that like black tea and rose hip that you think about from Pinot, but because it is Petaluma Gap, you also get that kind of um, pomegranate rich blue and black fruit characteristic to it as well. Now, this wine also has it needs a little bit of time. I think it's beautiful now as it is, but I also think that this wine is going to be aging just beautifully. So this could go another five years before I open it. I actually do have a stash hidden in the back of my wine uh, closet so that I do not touch it for a few more years because I uh, very much like my parents get very excited when I have wine and I try very hard to not uh, drink wine before it's time, but I have to hide it from myself in a lot of cases because I get excited and want to taste how the wine is developing. Um, so I think this wine's got another, you know, I would say in five years, it's going to be absolutely gorgeous, but this thing could sell her for easily 10 to 15 more. And it's just because of that acid, but also the tannin and a little bit of that really pretty kind of earth spice in the back end of it um, that just elevates it and just goes, okay, this, this is going to be amazing with food, but this is going to be amazing in five years. So kind of a hard question. You're, you're talking about the earth spice now, your primary uh, flavors on the palate right now? Yeah, I'm getting, so primary comes in and I get that kind of rose hip and black and blue fruit on the tip of my tongue. But as it goes back into the end of the palate and the finish, you get more of that kind of um, like little bit of peppercorn. I almost want to say kind of similar to maybe a black peppercorn where it's just a little bit of spice, but then you also get a little nice bit of earthiness, which I really just attribute to the soils up there at the site. So it's rich in the back, but then you've got that acid with the fresh fruit in the beginning. And how do you see this or how do you envision this developing over the next, I as you said, five to 10 years? I think it's just going to really come together so much more that as the flavors evolve, that tannin is going to kind of turn into a, um, I always, whenever I think about tannin, I see it visually and then it's very hard for me to express, but I think it's going to turn into more of a, um, a kind of characteristic that carries all the way through the palate and it just holds in the back on the finish instead of necessarily being more spicy. It's just going to really elongate the finish and make it a little more elegant as it gets to the back of the palate. 
Wow, very cool. It's just been such a pleasure having you on the podcast and and just such a small world that, you know, I met your mom. I know uh, Michael Brown pretty well, met Kimberly in the in the past. But I have to ask you before I let you go, has Paul tried any of your wines and what does he think? Um, so he's, of course, tried the Trombetta. Um, and he has tried one of my client's wines, Stressed Vines. And, you know, it's always, it's kind of funny with Paul because he just has so many projects and so many different wines on a daily basis that he tries. And he's always just told me like, in, in Paul's way, he's like, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's high praise. It is high praise from Paul. When Paul will, like I said, if he will actually drink a glass of the wine and then come back and pour a second glass, that's when you know you've made it. And I'm happy to say that's happened a few times. So we're well, good. Kudos, kudos. I Again, I can't thank you enough, Erica, for being on the podcast. It's just such a pleasure to meet you. And please tell your mom I said hello, tell Kimberly I said hello. And I can't wait to come out and set my watch to the fog. Yes, definitely. We would love to host you and show you all three sites. Oh, before I let you go real quick, how do people get a hold of the Fendler Wines? So through our website, actually, is the best way, just because we are so small. So it is Fendler Vineyards. And Fendler is P.F., for Fendler, for people who are looking at us. So P-F-E-N-D-L-E-R, vineyards.com. And that's the best place to find our wine. We are small, so therefore we are not in a lot of retail locations or obviously restaurants as restaurants are just opening back up again. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I for one will check it out because you've just made me a fan just listening to you. Once again, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.